0: Christy Schreiber, and we're here to discuss books that changed the world and changed us.
1: And I'm Gary Schreiber, and this is the How to Love It podcast. We hope you enjoyed the intro music by Memphis's very own local musicians, Holly Schatzberger and David Schatzberger. Dr. David is a composer here in town, and Holly is a professional flautist and singer.
0: Whoa, whoa, whoa. Flautist? She doesn't play the flout, she plays the flute. Oh, She's
1: my. a flutist. <laughs> I worry about your cultural upbringing. It's pronounced flautist.
2: Flautist. And, uh,
1: anyway, uh, they, they serve our community by leading music in our church, and David teaches at Rhodes College, and Holly is a speech pathologist, and uh, they're great musicians, and we hope you enjoy them as much as we do.
0: In this season of giving, we want to give as many shout outs as we can to the people who make a difference in our world. So if you have a small business or know someone in your community who does, please email us. As you know, I'm Christy and we're here. Our address is at howtolovelitpodcast.com. We'd love to post a picture of your favorite spot or some of your favorite peeps.
1: As we get closer to Christmas and the end of the year, there are so many traditions that mean something special. Since I was a little kid, uh, this has always been the most traditional time of year. And for me, as you know, Christine, I... Love Christmas and everything about <laughs> you it. do. I love decorating the house and making homemade Christmas ornaments and the parties and the rich food and the music and the lights on people's homes. And I even love the cold weather. And uh, some of my happiest memories as a child all uh, and also as a parent revolve around Christmas.
0: Well, I share your sentiment. I love Christmas, too. Although, as you know, most of my life, Christmas was not about cold weather. I'm really not a fan. Au contraire. In Brazil, we also— Hold on a second.
1: You're going to say au contraire, (laughs) but you didn't know flautist?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. Okay. We also really didn't go out of control on the whole holiday decorating thing, like— we do up here in the united states another difference for us was that christmas was in the summer and it's about the end of the school year our school year ended in december so we were excited about christmas but we're also excited about summer and vacation and oftentimes the beach again if we're talking cultural differences i will say this my brazilian friends all ate their christmas dinner at midnight on christmas eve But we, because we were Americans, had our big dinner at lunch, so we could party at our friends on Christmas Eve, crash out, open presents, eat again, all the best things in life, wrapped (laughs) up in 24 hours. Can't beat it.
1: (laughs) The best of both worlds or the best of at least two continents. Indeed. Well, speaking of Christmas Eve or the night before Christmas, that takes us to our poem, uh, the title of which is A Visit from St. Nicholas, but everyone refers to it by its first line, which is, Twas the Night Before Christmas, and presumably written by Clement Clark Moore. And Christy, before we read the poem, do we know who this guy is?
0: Well, sort of. I have to admit, I really hadn't heard of him in my life, really, before uh, I got to looking into this poem and prepared for today's podcast. He's kind of an expert obscure guy. But let me say, the story of this poem, although it evokes nothing but happy childhood memories for almost everyone, is not without its own scandal. (laughs) Oh, my. (laughs) We should share.
1: Well, of course. Well, let's start with the uncontested parts, and then we'll get into the controversy.
0: (laughs) The controversy. And then
1: after the scandal has been settled... (laughs) We'll read and discuss the most quintessential Christmas poem ever written on the American continent.
0: All right. Good plan. How about you do the historical stuff and I'll do the scandalous stuff. Don't we stuff? always? <laughs> oh, well, I I will say it's not Emily Bronte scandalous. It's more like Christmas Lifetime movie scandalous. Oh, harmless We're taking then. it down.
1: <laughs> well, that sounds good. Um, Clement Clark Moore was born in 1779 in New York City. Now, remember, that's only three years after the Declaration of Independence. I mean, it's not the most settled time in U.S. history by a long shot. Uh, but Moore's family seemed to do okay. And even if there were some of them that were British sympathizers and others that were pro-revolution, I mean, his father, Benjamin Moore.
0: Benjamin Moore liked the paint. <laughs> Different one?
1: (laughs) Yes. Uh, He was a well-respected Episcopal priest and rector of the famous Trinity Church. And if you've ever visited or seen pictures of lower Manhattan in New York City, this is the church right there on Broadway and Wall Street. Christy, you'll like this. One of Benjamin Moore's more famous accomplishments was ministering the last rites to Alexander Hamilton after his famous duel with Aaron Burr.
0: Did you throw that in for us, Hamilton fans? No,
1: I I did. It seems like any time <laughs> you throw the name Hamilton out now, it gets everybody's attention. I know. Anyway, uh, Clement Moore himself was a really scholarly and religious man and apparently a very serious man invested in theological education, and although not a priest like his father. He was most well-known at the time for um, his translation work for Bible students. He created a lexicon for Bible students studying to translate things into English from Hebrew. And another fun fact about him is that he inherited quite a nice piece of land right there in what is today the heart of New York City. Well,
0: that's nice.
1: Yeah, he subdivided it in the lots and sold it to wealthy city residents creating the Chelsea neighborhood, which was the name of the property. Uh, You may recognize that name because today it's still an upscale neighborhood on the west side of Manhattan. And although it's likely few Chelsea residents know they are living on the property of the guy who wrote or invented our jolly old Santa Claus concept, there is a little park with his name attached to it still in the area.
0: Well, I do recognize the name Chelsea. Very fancy.
1: (laughs) Hmm. As if like flautist fancy. (laughs) Indeed. Anyway, uh, Clement Moore, because of his real estate ventures, was a pretty wealthy man, as well as a very respected seminary professor. He gave 60 lots of land to the General Theological Seminary, as well as to St. Paul's Church. He lived a fairly prosperous and respectable life and died at the age of 84 In 1863, right in the middle of the Civil War. So he's living from the Revolution to the Civil War. Uh, So you can see his life started and ended in wartime, ironically. Uh, Pretty simple chronology, really. The general accepted story is that Moore, his wife, and his children, of which he had nine before it was all said and done. That's a lot. Well, they lived in a wonderful home with great fireplaces. And uh, one year, specifically uh, in 1822, he wrote a poem titled A Visit from St. Nicholas for his six children. He only had six at the time. Uh, During a sleigh ride home from Greenwich Village after buying a turkey for the family for Christmas. Although there is discussion that it might have been a Christmas goose instead of a turkey. (laughs) Uh, anyway, he composed a poem just as a family fun thing. That night, he read it to the family. And However the story goes, that at their house that night was a woman visiting them, the daughter of a friend named Dr. Butler. I'm not sure what the woman's name was. Anyway, she was there at the house and heard uh, Dr. Moore read the poem. She liked it and copied it into her album. And later on, she shared the poem with the editor of the Troy Sentinel, who published the poem anonymously without Moore's permission. According uh, to the original version of events, this upset Dr. Moore because he was a very serious person with a very serious academic reputation. And he thought printing this poem would uh, dilute his reputation as a scholar. <laughs> But the poem was well-received, and it immediately became famous. And no one knew who wrote the poem until 1844, when Moore published an anthology of his most famous works. And he included this poem in that anthology. This made him famous, um, but uh, ironically, not for any of the theology work he had worked so hard on. Such irony there. And to make matters even more Christmassy, there is a tradition to this day. At the Chapel of Intercession... At Broadway and 158th, where Moore is buried, every year a special guest reads a visit from St. Nicholas to the children in the church. After the reading, each child leaves the church with a lantern singing carols led by a choir. And from the church, they walk over to the cemetery where Moore is buried and they lay a Christmas wreath on his grave.
0: Well, that's a little Edgar Allan Poe-ish, I think, but, you know... A Christmas version, not as creepy, although anytime you <laughs> incorporate graves into anything, there's going to be a little bit of, of creepy there.
1: Well, this tradition is 109 years old, and it's one of New York City's oldest Christmas traditions. And although this year, I checked the church calendar, and it might be affected by COVID-19. Oh,
0: wow. After 109 years. Well, maybe they'll pull it off. You never know. Anyway, now do you want to know the scandalous part?
1: Well, <laughs> Of course, that's why we're here.
0: All right, there's a school of thought, and this is not a conspiracy theory, but an actual legitimate theory that suggests that Clement Moore did not write the poem. In fact, he stole it, and there is evidence to support it. You want to hear the evidence?
1: Well, of course I do.
0: (laughs) Okay, well, no one contests that he wrote the poem for his children and read it to them. The family friend was there and passed it on to the newspaper. Also, as you've already pointed out, this poem was published anonymously and it was anonymous for almost 20 years. What is contested is where he got the poem who originally wrote it. Did Dr. Moore really compose this on a sleigh after purchasing a turkey or a goose respectively, (laughs) or Did he steal it from an unsuspecting, jolly old poet of another kind?
1: Well, (laughs) how could anyone go back and question this sort of thing all these years later?
0: Well, there are specialists today that go back and analyze language. That's part of it. But also, there are suspicious details in the historical account that leaves questions. 20 years after publication, and right before Moore published his anthology that has the poem in it, he wrote the editor of the Troy Sentinel. Sentinel, and asked if anyone had ever claimed authorship of the poem. The editor told him that anyone who had known about the poem's origins had already died, and he didn't know anyone that could say one way or the other. Now... Why would an author call his publisher and ask if anyone else had claimed to write a poem that he claimed that he wrote?
1: Hmm. Well, suspicious, but not indicting. And maybe he just wanted to check for any posers, like Edgar Allen posers. (laughs) Or maybe he wanted to see if the woman had left any information about him. Maybe. But there's more.
0: After he took credit for the poem, a family by the name of the Livingstons came forward and they were very outraged. It turns out they remembered hearing the poem recited many, many times to them in their childhood by a deceased relative by the name of Henry Livingston. Henry Livingston was a Revolutionary War veteran, so he's quite a bit older than Dr. Moore, and he was a chubby Santa-looking-like man of Dutch and Scottish descent, and he was very well known for writing playful verses, lots for children, in the exact same meter that the poem A Visit from Nate Nicholas is written in. Also, Livingston was Dutch. And two of the original reindeers in the poem are named Dunder and Blixen.
1: And what is the significance of that?
0: Okay, Dunder and Blixen mean thunder and lightning in Dutch, but they mean nothing in English.
1: Well, thunder and lightning, that sounds like great reindeer names.
0: I know. And there's more. Oh, my. It was well known to a lot of people that Dunder and Blitzen was a catchphrase that Henry Livingston used a lot.
1: <laughs> a, wow, okay. So you're saying that this man, Henry Livingston, went around and when he needed to utter an element of surprise, like Great Scott or whatever, or instead of foul language, he would say Dunder and Blitzen?
0: That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> Now, how would Moore know to name the reindeers that? Although he did alter the name slightly to Donner and Blitzen, more Germanic Germanic because he is German. But Henry Livingston died at age 80 in 1829, well before the anthology came out. It's likely he didn't even know because he was old that the poem was even famous. Also, there are actual poems today that we still have, children's poems that Livingston wrote. And this is what I mean by saying that there are scholars that analyze language for this type of thing. What they do or what they have done is they compared the style of the poems that Livingston wrote to the style of A Visit from St. Nick. And they made assessments as to the likelihood that Livingston wrote it based on the way that he normally used language. So like you know we can all use, we all tend to use the same words over and over again we have the same speech patterns and this is called our style our speaking style or our writing style and people have done this analysis on this work most famously in 2000 the year 2000 A Vassar professor by the name of Don Foster published a paper and definitively asserts in his paper that the language and internal evidence of the way Livingston used words compared to how Moore used words and made rhymes left little doubt as to the real authorship of the poem.
1: (laughs) Mm. So, do you think it was Livingston or Moore?
0: Well, I was undecided until I found this last piece of evidence that... Has put me on Team Livingston. So, you wanna hear it?
1: Oh, yes, please, I'm <laughs> on edge.
0: Okay, in the preface of the anthology that Moore published with his poems, like the one that he published um, this poem in originally, he writes this I have composed all as carefully and correctly as I can. Now, that language itself seems a little stilted and strange to me, but here's the outrageous part it's a lie. He did not. Two of the poems in the book were written by his wife. And that stinker took the credit.
1: Hmm. Well, uh, then I can see there's no more to discuss here. (laughs) Except maybe the poem itself.
0: Oh, yes, the poem. Okay, that's the scandal. So I guess it's time. Let's start talking about the poem. Because no matter who wrote it, we all own it now. It's one of all of our famous christmas traditions that's associated with time of year the poem took its own wings or sleigh magic (laughs) so the name let's start there a visit from saint nicholas itself it's interesting saint nicholas is not dutch it's not german it's not english it's not american saint nicholas is turkish so let's talk about that who is the real saint nick
1: Well, the story goes that he was a bishop in the 4th century in a town called Myra in Turkey. He was a wealthy man, but had a habit of secretly giving to the poor, which is not a bad habit. There are actually quite a few legends about uh, this man, but the famous one is a legend about the time he met a poor man with three daughters. He was so poor that his daughters couldn't get married because he didn't have a dowry to go along with them.
0: Well, no one wants a girl without a dowry. (laughs)
1: Well, sadly, in 4th century Turkey, yes, uh, that's exactly the case. Um, anyway, Nicholas secretly dropped a bag of gold down the chimney and into the house. This meant that the oldest daughter would be able to get married and the gold dropped into a stocking that had been hanging by the fireplace drawing out. Eventually, people figured out who the nice man was and who was giving away a lot of money and that uh, and Nicholas became Saint Nick.
0: So the poem, A Visit from St. Nick, is about this man visiting the kids in the home of Livingston or Moore or whoever originally made up the poem. "'Twas the night before Christmas when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there." Okay, so let me get a little technical because, you know, this is a literature podcast. I do want to point out a couple of things besides just St. Nicholas. Notice that house and mouse rhyme. So if you remember from other poetry podcasts, that's what we call a couplet, two lines that rhyme. And he's going to use that pattern the entire way through. All the lines rhyme two by two by two by two. Also listen to the beat. Da 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 da.
1: Is that technical language?
0: <laughs> it is. If you listen, you can hear a little drum beat. That was the night before Christmas, and all through the house. This is different from iambic pentameter that we heard in Romeo and Juliet. You know when I said it imitated the beat of the human heart. Two houses, both alike and dignity. This isn't like that. This is called anapestic tetrameter.
1: Wow, what a word.
0: I know anapests and then tetrameter. Tetra means 4 because there's 4 anapests. And the da 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 da. It's fast. It's it's that fast paced It's jolly. The beat in the language supports the excitement the narrator feels or really anyone feels the night before Christmas. Twas the night before Christmas and all through the house. Can you feel it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes i can go ahead so
0: this is a narrative poem and it's a narrative poem that's because narrative poems are poems that tell a story it rhymes it has a fun meter it doesn't have hard language we can still read it even though it's 200 years old we can follow it it's full of imagery And imagery, as we all know, are the mental pictures that we can see in our heads that the writer makes there with the words that he chooses. And what's so great about the imagery of this poem is that it's the image of St. Nicholas who became what we now call Santa Claus and the reindeer. That's the big deal. Before this poem, pictures of St. Nicholas were so different. Google the pictures of St. Nick. St. Nick is the patron saint of sailors. In pictures of him, he's a tall, skinny, bald guy. He's very stern and unsmiling. You know, a very traditional looking saint. In this poem, that's not who St. Nicholas is at all. He's fat. Famously, he has a bowl full of jelly. And he has merry cheeks. And he's carrying toys. And he has a beard. And he's even smoking a pipe. That's not very modern of him. But the smoke, it's magical, and it makes a wreath around his head. His eyes are twinkling, and this makes the narrator laugh. Also, the reindeer. Those weren't a thing before this poem. St. Nicholas didn't have reindeer and turkey. That's, that was completely made up. And it's an invention by Livingston or Moore or whoever wrote this. And these are the famous names that we all know so well. Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen and Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen.
1: (laughs) I noticed that Rudolph is conspicuously absent.
0: (laughs) Yes. Well, Rudolph, that's another story. It took another couple hundred years for him to show up. And ironically, another New Yorker came up with him. A Jewish man, didn't even celebrate Christmas by the name of Robert May, wrote the story of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer as a marketing gimmick for the store Montgomery Ward. But that's a whole other story, and it's a very interesting story in and of itself. The point I'm making here is that this poem created the image that has stayed and has developed into everything we think about in terms of what Christmas is in the Western tradition today. You and I even had a fat, jolly Santa St. Nick in our front yard in a blow-up before it blew up this year. It's the power of the imagery supported by the beat and the rhyme that made some of the first folklore that was ever created in the United States. So, that's kind of fun. It is. With all that being said, Gary, I think it's time. Let's start over and let's read the poem that gave us the famous phrase, "'Twas the night before Christmas."
1: When all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse, the stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds, while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads, and Mama in her kerchief and I in my cap had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap. When out on a roof there arose such a clatter, I sprang from my bed to see what was the matter, Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutter, and threw up the sash. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave the luster of midday to objects below, when what to my wondering eyes should appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer with a little old driver, so lively and quick I knew in a moment it must be St. Nick." More rapid than eagles, his coursers they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen, on Comet, on Cupid, on Donner and Blitzen, to the top of the porch, to the top of the wall, now dash away, dash away, dash away all, as dry leaves that before the wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle and mount to the sky. So up to the housetop the coursers they flew, with the sleigh full of toys and St. Nicholas, too. And then, in a twinkling, I heard on the roof the prancing and pawing of each little hoof. As I drew in my head and was turning around, down the chimney St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. And away they all flew like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim, ere he drove out of sight, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night.
0: Well, Merry Christmas to you all. Whether Christmas is in your personal cultural tradition or not, enjoy the season, enjoy the culture, enjoy the magic. And don't forget to text this episode to a friend and support us. (laughs) See you next week and peace out.